to share with us from Psalm chapter 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, this morning your word stirs in us this hunger for joy, this hunger for the pleasure that we can find in your presence. As we reflect on the words that we were singing, we know that there is peace in your presence. We know from the word that there is pleasure forevermore in your presence, and it is only in your presence that joy can be found. And so, Father, we gather this morning as an assembly of people who have brought our own brokenness into the room, brought a great variety of desires into the room, carrying a great many burdens of sin and shame, but also hurt and fear and pain. But God, we're here in your presence because we believe that there's joy here. And we believe that you are here to instruct us. You're here to enliven and enlighten. And Father, you're here to inflame. And so, Spirit of God, I pray your presence comes in us this morning. That we now, in this moment, as we prepare to hear from your word, we leave the shame behind. We let the godly guilt move us to repentance rather than brokenness and shame. And Father, we repent before you now of those things that we have done that have fallen short of your glory, fallen short of obedience, where we have set ourselves up as the center of our own lives. And Father, we come hungry and thirsty for the presence that brings joy. So God, I pray specifically that no one would leave this room this morning still in need of joy and purpose, but that, Father, you would remind us of who we are under your creation, a renewed purpose, a renewed righteousness in you, and, Father, that you would sustain us in this moment, that you would bring joy to us in this moment. And Father, speak through your words, speak through the music, speak through the prayers, speak through the kids' teachers as the kids go upstairs. And Father, show us how we can follow you and walk in joy. God, I pray for the same, the same for those who are not with us 
but are watching via the live stream, listening at home, as there's a great number of reasons that would cause someone to miss the fellowship of the saints here as a church body. Father, I pray your presence with them. I pray for your presence on that living room couch. I pray for your presence in a, in a car as someone's driving on a trip listening to the service. I pray for your presence for the person that is sick, that is physically limited, limited and unable to be here. Father, may they find fullness of joy in your presence as well. Because we come as a people thirsty for joy. We bring all of our fears. We bring all of our failures. We bring those things that distract us from you. And now in your presence, Father, we give them to you. We proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ as having brought us life and vitality and new purpose and, yes, righteousness that allows us to stand before you and praise you. So God, speak in us, work in us. I pray for every kid's teacher to speak the truth of the gospel to young hearts and minds this morning. And I pray that, Father, as we open the word in this room, that you are clear, that you receive the glory, that Jesus Christ is the center, and that we walk out as a renewed people, renewed in joy and renewed in your spirit. In the name of the resurrected Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning for worship. Before we dismiss the kids, I want to just say a note about our kids' dismissal and kids' classes. This is Promotion Sunday. So for many of the kids, school will start this week. Some will start in a couple weeks. But kids will now be a grade up from what they were all last school year and um, over the summer. So if you don't know... It, where if you haven't, you know, Rika sent out information and all that, it may be good to follow your kids out into the lobby, as I dismiss in a minute, because kids don't move yet, but kids, will, some of the kids will be in new classrooms uh, because they're promoted into different groups. So that means, um, kids, look for your name on the side of the door, make sure you're in the right class, teachers will do the same, parents pick them up at the end of the service, but for now, let's have the kids be dismissed, and parents, want you join them to make sure you know where you're going to find them at the end of the service today. And thank you, um, all of you, for entrusting your kids to us, and thanks to all of the volunteers that are serving to teach those uh, young people. A few things going on in the life of the church to make you aware of. Uh, tonight, for families of all ages, uh, is our back-to-school splash event, and um, we are going to hope that it is only wet on the slides and not in the atmosphere tonight. Um, but it looks like there's a possibility of the rain easing up. So we've, right now, we have a plan 5 o'clock to 8 o'clock. And here's how the breakdown's going to work. The younger children, the elementary school and below, are going to have the water slides and the, the fun stuff from 5 to 6.30, and then the youth are going to have them from 6.30 to 8. So youth can come earlier. If you have older kids, you can all come at the same time. Youth can either help serve out, serve and help with helping the little kids on the slides. Um, we'll have uh, food here as well. You can eat anytime you want. There will be plenty of food. And if you don't have either youth or kids, still come. We'd love to have you here. We'd love to have you hang out. We'd love to have you eat and just enjoy an evening with your church family here this evening. That's six to eight. Hot dogs, popcorn, drinks, 
uh, water inflatables, all that kind of stuff. There's also a baby and toddler area too. Um, also today, if you saw in the lobby, we're collecting school supplies for Doug Gap Elementary School. This is the last day they will be delivered tomorrow. So if you forgot to bring something today, call the church office first thing tomorrow and let us know that you'll bring it before they take it over to the school tomorrow. Um, next Sunday also, we'll have a um, new members lunch. We call it Fellowship 101, and here's how it works. It's an informational lunch. We provide the lunch. You eat, you listen, you hear the history of the church, you hear about our, our doctrine, you hear about our ministries, you get to see the church's kind of founding documents and hear more about what's going on, what God's doing in the life of the church, and you will be presented with, here's the steps to become a member of Fellowship Bible Church. This is why we think membership is important, why we think everyone should join a church. And uh, there, you will not be pressured to join it. It's mostly an informational meeting where you will be encouraged. Here's what God's doing here. Here's what you need to know. And if at the end of it you want to take a step forward in membership, we will be happy to share that with you. If you have the Church Center app, you can sign up that way. If you don't know what the Church Center app is, just find me at the end of the service. I'll help you, I'll help you get signed up for that. Um, also, we've, you've heard for a couple of weeks about the um, women's quad groups. There's some papers in, in the back of the room for that. We're going to extend the sign-up one more week for that. We, were, we said we would close it last week. You can still sign up for that today, either in paper or, again, on the Church Center app. And the last thing, we want you to save the date for Sunday evening, August 27th, which will be our congregational meeting. And if that, you know, just gives you like concerns about I don't like congregational meetings they're stressful and I don't like people that argue and I don't you know they're boring or whatever just come to it just come to our congregational meeting if you've never been to one before it's different it's fun you'll hear ministry reports you'll get ice cream that's how we make congregational meetings fun so come and eat some ice cream and um, we will have some child care for uh, elementary school kids as well for, and um, uh, nursery as well. So we'd love for you to be here and just save that date, Sunday evening, August 27th. Now we're going to continue in Proverbs. And again, um, I did this the last couple of Proverbs sermons, but I, pre I prepared a notes sheet so that you can follow along because this is a very topical uh, journey through multiple different verses in Proverbs. So if you didn't get one of those on the way in, they're on that back table right by the door, and you are free to get up and walk around and get, get a sheet from the table that will help you guide, uh, help guide you through our journey this morning. See, and now you wouldn't be the only one doing it. So thank you to those of you that stood up first to do it, because that makes everybody else more willing to do it. Um, and if the preacher's wife does it, then yeah, anyone can just get up, I mean, you can get up and walk out anytime you want. Um, okay, I'll answer to that later. Um, Proverbs. What we've done the last couple of months, you know, we spent, we spent a, two months maybe walking through Proverbs 1 through 9 and looking at just this journey of wisdom. And then the last section of Proverbs, we're spending a few weeks just looking at the different topics and themes that Proverbs brings to us. So we've gone into all sorts of areas in the book of Proverbs already. We've talked about relationships. We've talked about um, friendship. We've talked about what happens when a relationship needs to be restored. We've talked about all of those different sort of journeys of wisdom and decision-making that Proverbs brings to us. Uh, this week, 
we're looking at Proverbs in our emotional life. Because maybe you, you know, maybe you don't know, God cares deeply about your emotional state, about your emotional life. Um, I'm a dude, okay? Um, as such, I've said it before, and I think I've said it publicly from here, I have been, I've lived most of my life emotionally stunted, unable to really know how to process emotions or what to do with it, uncomfortable with tears, really comfortable with sarcasm, but not really comfortable with like deep emotions. And um, one of the things that family teaches you, marriage, daughters particularly, sons sort of too, but daughters in a, in a deeper way, teach dads to sort of emotionally connect at, at a deeper level. Um, we have two daughters and one son. Um, our youngest daughter has more emotions than the other four of us all put together. And it is a wild ride at times. And in the summer, everything's different. Schedules are different. There's a little bit more fatigue that comes out. And with fatigue comes heightened emotions. And so there are times that I look at, our, our, I look at Jess, really, my wife. I look at Jess and I say, I have no idea what we're going to do when she's a teenager. It scares me to death. She's seven years old. And I can't take the emotions. And there are some times when I'm just thinking, I have no idea where that came from. I have no idea what to do. So I'm just going to like sit here and try to stay out of it and hope Jess has some answer to this. Because I don't. But what, but what Proverbs is telling us is that emotions are not something to be afraid of. That we should actually feel deeply. And, and in fact, it's not just Proverbs. Because whenever we look at one book of, of the scriptures, we want to look in the context of all of biblical revelation that God has for us. So Proverbs is one specific book that presents things in a certain way to us, presents to us, here's how you walk with wisdom, here are some priorities for living a life of wisdom and, and a life of righteousness. But Proverbs is, and we've said this a few times, but it's always a good reminder, Proverbs is pointing to Jesus in a way that some of the authors of the Proverbs themselves don't really understand. They don't see it for what it's worth on the front end. They, they see this is how you live a life of wisdom. This is how you make decisions. They're coming from a Jewish context. They're thinking through, here is a, a life where you get two choices, two paths. The path to wisdom looks like this. The path to foolishness or folly looks like this. This path is better. Choose the path of wisdom. But it's a lot harder. It's a lot more narrow. And you've got to stay on it. It's easy to fall off. But what the authors of Proverbs don't fully recognize as they're writing is how much Jesus comes as the wonderful counselor. Jesus comes as the embodiment of all of God's wisdom in human form. And so when we look at emotions in Proverbs, we're going to have to keep an eye on Jesus as well. Because Jesus came as a human. Jesus is God in human flesh. And so, so much of what we learn about what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus in an emotional way, how we manage our emotions, how we live responsibly and wisely with our, our emotions, so much of that is patterned by God himself with human flesh on, in the person of Jesus. So we'll look at Jesus a lot through this as well, but for the most part, we're going to stay in the book of Proverbs and we're going to look at four key emotions. And that's not the only ones that Proverbs talks about. But we'll look at four key emotions in the book of Proverbs and how we are to think of those in light of the book of Proverbs 
and in light of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those are fear, anger, jealousy, and joy. Overall, the message of the book of Proverbs is like this. The wise person is cool-headed. The wise person is, is not an impetuous hothead. That's the fool. So Proverbs, you get two ways. You get the wise path and the foolish path. This way is steady. This way is graceful. This way is measured. And this way is erratic, the path of foolishness. So part of Proverbs is about managing emotions. Uh, a month ago, we looked at the, the theme that we looked at was how our words matter and how Proverbs guides us in our words and in our speech. And this has a lot of similarities to that because really, your emotions come out in your words, right? And so if we look back at that passage, or that, that sermon, so many of those passages have, have applications for today as well. Because if you can manage your speech, it shows you're managing your emotions. If you can't manage your emotions, it's a hopeless endeavor to try to manage your speech. Because what you're thinking and what you're feeling just has a way of coming out. And it tends to come out through the mouth before we can stop it, and then we regret what we said. But really, the path of wisdom is not so much rigidly trying to self-discipline yourself to always do the right thing. That's what one reading of Proverbs could present us with. Really, the path of wisdom is finding out how to live a life that honors God and follows Jesus, where we manage our emotions. And we're not always rigidly self-disciplining ourselves as if we are working our way towards Jesus. But we are, we are replacing negative emotions with positive emotions as we follow Christ in joy. As we live in light of our Heavenly Father in love. And then we, we pass over the need for things like anger and jealousy because our fear of God and our love for God leads us to the path of joy. So we'll look at these in order fear. This is one of the biggest questions in the study of the entire Bible and especially in the Old Testament, and it narrows in in a, in a unique way in Proverbs. And I'll, I'll show you what I mean by that. Um, I do not, what I made the decision this week, we're going to try something a little different. The verses are not going to be on the screen this week in, their, in totality. You'll have the verse references on the screen. You have them on your paper if you got one of those, or you, I hope you have your own Bible. I encourage you, bring your own Bible and look at them that way. So there'll be a little bit less on the screen today. But Proverbs 1-7, the first verse here to look at. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So those two verses we see, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One brings insight. So Proverbs has this, has this approach where there are similar words that get used a little bit differently, where the authors of Proverbs are trying to compound this concept to us. So wisdom, knowledge, insight, all of those are used here in between Proverbs 1-7 and Proverbs 9-10. The fear of God gives us wisdom, knowledge, and insight. Really similar words, and there's some differences that we've talked about previously in the series that we won't get into today. But the bottom line here is that what God is showing us is that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But then you have Proverbs 28.1. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. 
So fear is, is an emotion that we need to understand that Scripture talks about a lot. But Proverbs says two things here that in one way contrast and in another way are, are incredibly complementary. And we have to get through the contrast to the, the complementarity of it. Number one, Proverbs says fear. Number two, Proverbs says be bold. And, and here's the, the, the track that it takes you on. Fear God, gain wisdom, wisdom leads to boldness. So before you get to boldness, you have to start with fear. But in our brains, in our language, it seems like those two concepts are polar opposites. How do you get to boldness through fear? Isn't boldness opposed to fear? We like courage. Courage is a virtue. But fear doesn't feel like a virtue. But it's one of those really important doctrines in Scripture that we've got to get a grasp of. Because these two verses, Proverbs 1, 7 and 9, 10, are not the only places in Scripture that tell us you should fear God. A couple years ago, we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes. We saw that the book of Ecclesiastes shows us, in the end, that life is simple. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's all, that's all you have to do. That's all you have to worry about and think about in life. And then, then life will be, will be peaceful and purposeful and good if you just fear God and keep his commandments. So what is the scripture telling us here? What is God telling us when he says, you should fear me? Think about it. Should you be afraid of God? Should you cower before the presence of God? But doesn't God tell us not to fear? 1 John 4 says it like this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Those are God's words, not my words. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So what do we do with this truth? Where the Old Covenant Scriptures are telling us, fear God. And the New Covenant Scriptures are saying, fear is opposed to love. And that fear gives way to love. Well, I think there's a, there's a deeper doctrine here that is, that is so important for us as Christians. And the wrong thing to do, there's two wrong paths. Number one, fear is fear. God is just. God is holy. He will punish you. You should be afraid. That's one wrong approach. The second wrong approach is new covenant supersedes old covenant. New covenant says perfect love casts out fear. Old covenant says fear. New covenant wins. We don't need to talk about fearing God. I think there's a mediating path here. And, and so many others have honored this throughout church history. John Murray, one author, says the fear of God is the soul of godliness. That the way to live a life that honors God is to fear him. Uh, Jerry Bridges describes the fear of God as the animating and invigorating principle of a godly life. He says, you want to live a godly life? Fear animates you and invigorates you. It brings life to you. So how can they say this? They say this because they see that for us, fearing God goes beyond being afraid of God. Rather, the fear of God compels adoration and love. It's fear which consists in awe, reverence, honor, and worship. It's the reflex that leads us to reflect on the holiness and perfection of him and his transcendence. What would God be like? What would worship be like if God was like us? If God was just a 
slightly better version of us. It was a human that was good, but not perfect, that was limited, but certainly not unlimited. Worship would be empty, and that God would not have great resources for us. But the God that we worship is a God that is other than us. That's what transcendence means. It means he's not limited by the things that limit us. It means that he doesn't live in time and space the way that we do. It means he is not just um, omnipresent, all-present. He is also all-powerful. He is also all-knowing. And he is all-just. As we go to a mediating position on the fear of the Lord that doesn't that doesn't cower in fear, nor does it negate the concept of fear altogether. Here's a verse that unlocks it for me. Romans 8, 15. It says, God has not given us a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but a spirit of adoption as sons by which we call out Abba, Father. Romans 8, 15. What does that tell us? That tells us there's two spirits here, the spirit of slavery that will reduce us to cower before God in fear, but also there's this spirit of adoption, spirit of sonship. The picture of the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament and throughout the scriptures is really a picture of sonship and a picture of adoption. And so that means there's, there's a limitation in the way our human minds accept this, and that's okay. We're just going to talk about it for a second. That means the way you conceive of the fear of the Lord is going to be affected by your human father. And, and the ease with which you grasp this concept is going to be affected by how well your father loved you in both unconditional love and corrective justice and discipline. Because if any of us had a human father that was perfect in all of those things, we would get this. A human father that loved us unconditionally, that we, need, that we never had to fear whether he would accept us or not, but a human father that could punish us, that could discipline us, was willing to discipline us, and if we did something wrong, that human father would correct it. I, I will maintain that I had one of the best fathers I could possibly imagine, but he was not perfect. But when I look at this through the lens of my father, I see, I, I, I kind of get a piece of it because I see that my father uh, patterned for me loving authority, authority that I was afraid of stepping out of line at times. I was really afraid of, as a, and, and it progressed, right? And this is what, what good parenting should do. You're, you're afraid of the consequences at first. At first, what you're most concerned about is whatever consequences you get for the actions that step out of line that are, that are disobedient to your parents. I was afraid in one stage of my dad in that way. But, but as I got older, I knew that I was always going to be loved. I was always going to be accepted. I was always affirmed even as I was corrected. So then that fear transitioned from fear of consequences to fear of disappointment. And, and not my disappointment, but his disappointment. My dad is not going to give me any consequences at this point. But disappointing my dad, man, that is still just, oh, and that hurts. And I care far more about my father's approval now than I do 
any consequences that he could give me. And that's a journey of maturity in fear. That's the way God guides us through fear, because that is sonship fear. It's not you're going to lose relationships. It is that we have a God that is holy and just. And again, any of our human fathers are are only limited illustrations of this. But our God is holy and just. He will punish sinners. But once you are adopted into his family by repenting of your sin and receiving the gift righteousness of Jesus, you're adopted in and you're loved and you're loved to the uttermost. You are loved from here until eternity. And there is nothing that you're going to do that is going to deflect Christ's righteousness off of you now once you have been adopted in. And there's nothing that you can do that is going to, uh, that is going to release you from the love of God. And yet, this God who has given so much, who has sacrificed his own son, who has, who has paid the ultimate price so that we could be brought into the family, this God that has loved us so much, what maturity in Christ and following Christ does is in awe-filled reverence We look to this God with love, and we want to obey because of the great love he has shown us. Sinclair Ferguson would describe it like this. Fear is that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. All of this is a little too too deep for you. Let me try to make it a little bit more simple. The fear of the Lord is the way the Bible speaks of either a sudden or a long-developed awareness of who God is and his centrality to all of life. So let's define it this way. When you are putting God at the center Because you know that's where he belongs. That's fear of God. The New Testament, the Pharisees, what is said about them is that they sought the approval of men more than they sought the approval of God. What does that mean? Who was at the center? Other people. Or themselves and their reputation. And that's so easy to do, right? We put ourselves at the center all the time. Because we care what other people think about us. We care about our reputations. We care about our careers. We care about our families. So sometimes we put our children first. Sometimes we put our career first. Sometimes we put our reputation first. Sometimes we put our own pleasure and desires first. Any of those things is contrary to the fear of God. Fear of God simply means you know who belongs at the center and it ain't you. He belongs in the center. And then when you live your life around that center with God himself at the center, that is how you live in awe, in reverence, in pleasure, in joy, in love, in faithfulness. Because you're recognizing he's at the center. That's why it's the beginning of wisdom. You can't enter onto the path of wisdom without recognizing your life revolves around God and not the other way around. When you are the sun and everything revolves around you, That leads down the path of foolishness. When God is the Son and everything's revolving around Him, especially you, your heart, your desires, everything you do, that is living in the fear of God. And that is the path to wisdom. And that 
allows us to be bold. Because look at the different at the different um, the differences between fear and boldness in these two passages, between uh, one and nine and twenty eight. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Here's what happens: when you fear man, you can't be bold with man. When you fear God, you can be bold with man. Because what's he going to do? What's mankind going to do to you if God, this holy, transcendent creator of the ends of the earth who has loved you dearly, there's nothing you can do to escape the love of God at this point now that you've been adopted into the family. If he's at the center and you fear him above all else, then why not be bold with everybody else? You're not going to care about your relationships. Uh, uh, sorry, you're not going to care about your reputation in your relationships. You're not going to care as much whether people think you're smart or dumb or whether people think that you are good at your job or bad at your job. You're going to care that you're glorifying God. And so you're just going to let the truth be the truth. We talked about that with, when we talked about relationships and we talked about words. All throughout the book of Proverbs, we just tell the truth. We make the next right decision. We choose to live in wisdom. We choose to stay on the path. And we don't worry about managing what other people think about us because God is at the center. And when we live in righteousness, and sometimes living in righteousness means speaking the truth and defending your reputation to a limited extent for the purpose of bringing honor to the God who you're following. We protect Christ's reputation above our reputation. We protect Christ's kingdom above our own work life because what we ultimately want to see is other people recognize our lives revolve around Christ. He is the center. So I don't care what somebody else is going to do to me or what they're going to think of me. If I'm honoring Christ, it's going to be okay. If you live in light of eternity, and that's coming in a couple weeks about what Proverbs tells us about eternity. That one's going to be a fun close to this. But if we live in light of that day, recognizing that on that day, all will be made right, the wicked will be punished, the righteous will be rewarded, all will be ushered into one of two eternal destinies, one the presence of God, one separation from God and punishment. If we live our lives in light of that truth, then God's at the center and we want to honor and glorify him. And those people that have hurt us, those people that say nasty things about us, those people that we want to punish, that they lose their significance when we take them out of the center and put Christ where he belongs. That's what Proverbs tells us about fear. Fear God, take people out of the center, and be bold in your obedience. Anger. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 14.29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Whoever is slow to anger, 16.32, is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. That's three verses about being slow to anger. Wise people are slow to anger. Point number one. 29.22 starts to give us the picture of point two. A man of wrath stirs up strife. One given to anger causes much transgression. Proverbs 10.12, 
hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So wise people are slow to anger. Anger makes things worse. And number one, wise people are slow to anger. That's one of the things that God loves to say about himself. I'm a holy God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. God says it about himself repeatedly throughout the scriptures. Why is that? Because that's what grace is. That's what mercy is. That's what God's loving kindness is. It means that God is a just God. He will punish sinners. And sin should, in God the Father, produce anger and, yes, wrath. So he would be an unjust God if he said about himself, I am the Lord your God who has no anger. Because at a certain point, the wrath of God has to be poured out on sin or there is no justice. So what God says about himself continually is I am slow to anger. And what he says in the new covenant is that he is waiting. The patience of the Lord is, what, is for what? Is for our salvation. The Lord tarries. The Lord waits. Christ has not come back, not because Christ is busy doing other things, but because he is waiting for more people to come to a knowledge of the truth, for more people to be saved. God's wrath God's anger is slow so that his mercy and grace can be poured out to us, to all nations. And so we represent God. We follow the character of God. We become little versions of Jesus following Jesus when we live by point one, though, and there in those first three verses, 1911, 1429, 1632. We are slow to anger. Slow to anger. Not devoid of anger. Slow to anger. 29.22 talks about the implications, the, the, what happens in the aftermath of anger. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. This is the opposite of being slow to anger. This is a man of wrath, one prone to anger. You know what that looks like, right? We know the difference. We, when you get to know somebody, you can tell the difference between somebody that just anything happens, and they very quickly go into anger. They very quickly respond in anger. They're like always at like a seven or an eight, and you push the wrong button, and they're at a nine or a 10 in a heartbeat. But you know those people too that are living at, at steadiness, that are controlling the emotion of anger. And you know when that person gets to the point of anger, something's wrong. I think that, and going back to the example of my dad, that, that's the example I've lived with. Some of you live, have lived with people that are angry and move to anger quickly. The blessing of my life is I, moved, I lived with a father who was steady. And when dad was mad, y'all did something really bad. Like that's just the way it was. It was, not, it was not that dad would be impatient and dad would always be honest about all these little things. It was when that man became angry, you knew something terrible had happened. Something incredibly um, disobedient, dishonorable, disrespectful, whatever it was. We can tell the difference between those people in our lives. And that's what Proverbs is telling us to do. Anger prone is the path to folly. Slow to anger is the path towards wisdom and righteousness. But the new covenant gives us something really interesting. Ephesians 4. Be angry. It's in the Bible. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and 
do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So yes, Paul, the apostle, who wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else in the New Covenant Scriptures in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul commands us, be angry. But in context of that command, he is saying, when you are angry, because some things create in just people, in righteous people, some things create legitimate anger. But in the context of that anger that you feel, do not sin in your anger. So there are, there are still guardrails in place. And what, what kind of things are we, angry, are, are we allowed to be angry about? We're allowed to be angry about those things that hurt other people, those radical injustices, those radical sins that cause harm to other people. Those are things that Christians legitimately should get angry about, should pound their fists in anger about those things that cause harm to other people that are not right, that we know from our Christian formation, we know from the scriptures, this is unjust, this is sin, this is wrong. We're allowed to be angry about it, but we're not allowed to sin in our anger. Sin is still sin. And so how do you, how do you differentiate there? One author said it like this as I was reading this week, anger is a judging emotion. Anger in our hearts, feeling that something is wrong, that's, that's a judgment that we are making. We feel something is wrong, so we experience anger. And let's be honest, there's a lot in our world that is wrong. There's a lot in society that is wrong. There's probably a lot in your workplace that's wrong. There's a lot in your school that's wrong. There's a lot in your extended family that's wrong, okay? People are sinners. There's legitimate things out there that are sinful that cause us to respond and say, this isn't right. But wisdom brings this judging emotion itself under judgment. Fools unleash anger without filtering it. And in so doing, they exalt themselves. They lift up for everyone else to see their own foolishness. Because in their anger, they just react. But the wise person filters the anger. And filters the anger through an understanding of sin justice and forgiveness. So when I have anger at somebody else's sin, it's, it's possible that that's a right and good reaction to somebody else's sin, but I have to ask myself, am I a sinner saved by grace? Where's my sin in this equation? What, what is my role in this equation? Is there anything I can do that can actually move this person towards conviction of sin and reconciliation? Uh, the same chapter of Ephesians says it like this, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth except what is good for building up the body. And so in our anger, sometimes we just got to release those words, and that's what often leads us to sin. But what Paul is telling us about anger, in light of the wisdom of Proverbs, complementing and further bringing, coloring in the definition of old covenant wisdom in Proverbs, what Paul is telling us is you can be angry about a sin, but you have to filter it through the received grace and forgiveness at the cross that you've received because those who have been forgiven much know how to forgive. So we can confront sin. Proverbs has a lot of that. We've talked about that for the last month. We can confront sin, but as we confront sin, 
we confront sin not to punish, not to hurt, not to make ourselves look better than the offending party. We confront sin for the purpose of their repentance and their reconciliation. First and foremost with God the Father, but also with ourselves. So the things that make you angry, what do you do in response to those? Do you seek the repentance of the person who has done that sin, or do you seek the punishment of that person? We can be angry and not sin because God is the judge, because God is the one that sits on the throne, and God does reward the righteous and punish the sinner. And so learning how to manage anger is about who's at the center, because the just judge is at the center. You don't have to sit on that seat. You don't have to dole out the justice for everyone in your life. You don't have to define whether people in your life are sinful or righteous. God does that. But you can be an instrument of God used by the Holy Spirit to help someone come to a point of conviction. But if you do it out of a desire to punish, it's not going to be received well. But if you do it out of a desire for their repentance and their wholeness, you'll be surprised how God can work. Two more. We know about fear. We know about anger. What about jealousy? Proverbs 14, 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Proverbs 27, 4. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? Proverbs 24, 19 and 20. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Two things. Jealousy destroys and jealousy is ultimately wasted. There's no purpose. There's no point in jealousy. But first, jealousy destroys. You ever woke up one morning and your back's hurting? And you're just like, oh, I slept wrong. I'm getting old. I did something wrong. And you just walk around with the, throughout the day with this like back pain that just nags at you, or maybe it's, maybe it's your knees, maybe it's your ankles, maybe it's everything, maybe it's every bone in your body. That's what jealousy does. It makes your bones rot. That's the image. Think about the joint pain, the muscle pain that you experience after you've, you've done something really hard or you've been, had an injury or whatever. Think about the aches that that brings. And the author of Proverbs here is telling us that's how jealousy works. It hurts from the inside out. Your body is decaying from the inside out. You're rotting from the very structure of your being outside. That which is supposed to give you structure and strength in your, in your body is rotting. So everything's just falling apart. That's what jealousy does in Proverbs 14.30. Envy, jealousy, makes the bones rot. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but jealousy is worse. That's what Proverbs 27.4 says. Because jealousy is sneaky. When your anger comes out, everybody knows. And hopefully somebody calls you on it. Or hopefully you experience immediate consequences and you have to figure out how to be a less angry person. But in Proverbs 27, the reason he's saying that jealousy is more dangerous is that that doesn't always come out. Some of us are smart enough 
to not verbalize our jealousy even when we have to verbalize our anger. Because when we're jealous of another person, their successes, their possessions, their roles, their relationships, their influence, whatever it is, sometimes we just keep that to ourselves. And that's where it rots. Anger tends to come out. Jealousy destroys from the inside out. But ultimately, the problem is the same as anger. And the reminder is the same. Proverbs 24, the evil man has no future. Why would we be jealous of people that have no future? Why would we be jealous of their earthly possessions, of their earthly influence, of their notoriety, when we know that either they're a brother in Christ and our future is the same, or they're lost without Christ and their future is condemnation and punishment? There's no point in jealousy because this life is not the center of our lives. Our days in this life are only a blip on the radar of the wholeness of eternity that we will spend in the presence of Christ. And so ultimately, we don't have to be jealous for the same reason we don't have to be angry. God's on the justice seat. God's the judge. Don't be jealous of people that are on their way to the punishment of God. And don't be jealous of your brothers and sisters that are on their way to the same eternity you're heading towards. Reframing re-understanding how we live our lives centered around God the Father helps us manage these emotions of anger and jealousy and opens up a door for joy. Proverbs 17, 22. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Talking about bones again. Why does the author of Proverbs just talk about bones rotting all the time? Proverbs 15, 30. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones. Here's the answer. We got our bones that are decaying because of our envy, because of our jealousy, or because of 1722, a crushed spirit. That's depression. That's the hardships of life. They rot us from the inside out. But joy rejoices the heart. Good news refreshes the bones. So let's say, You've walked the journey of anger, of jealousy, or you've walked the, the journey of sorrow, and you're in that point where your bones have rotted, and you're struggling because you just feel like you're less, of, less than yourself. You feel like you're a diminished version of yourself, and you can't get up, and you can't move, and you can't live the way you once lived. You need good news. And do you know what the biblical word for good news is? Gospel gospel of Jesus Christ quite simply says this you're a sinner so you need to be concerned about that but Jesus the son of God came to earth lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death so that sinners could become righteous in his place he took your place so you could take his place he took your place on the cross so that you can take his place in the pleasure of God in the presence of God and if you repent of your sins And if you receive Jesus and his gift, righteousness, then you receive the good news, you receive joy, and you can be restored. In Psalm 1611, which I read as we prayed, you, God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness, fullness of joy. Why? Because we've put God at the center. We've understood fear enough to put God at the center so we can be bold with those that are not God 
and we can be reverent of the one who is God. And then because God's at the center, we don't have to respond in anger because the judge is going to take care of them. And we don't have to respond in jealousy because the judge is going to take care of them. And because we've rid those things out of our lives and we've put him at the center, we've received the good news that this righteous God, that we should, in our lostness and in our sin, we should cower in fear. That's what the old covenant is communicating to us. There's a rightful place to cower in fear. But because of Jesus, we no longer have to. We get to enter into the holy places because of the blood of Jesus. And we get to enter into the presence of God. And that's literally the only way to find joy. There is no joy in life. There is no deep, abiding, anchoring purpose. There is nothing you can grasp in your family, in your career, in your possessions. There's no next thing you can get to that's going to bring anchoring, abiding, hearty joy that keeps you from being swayed around by all the challenges you'll face. It's only Jesus. God at the center. Jesus, the Son of God, bringing new life into you. I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and make their way up here. I'm going to close us with a couple of thoughts. What do we do in light of this? We've heard the gospel. We've received the gospel. We've talked about emotions. How do we respond? A couple quick thoughts. I think every single one of us could stand to open ourselves up to emotions at a greater level. Doesn't mean you have to be all touchy-feely and stuff. I'm still a little uncomfortable with that. But you can open yourself up at the emotional level to a God who deeply, deeply loves you, who has died for you, who has opened himself up to you. The Jesus, the Savior who is gentle and lowly in heart, has told you he wants to welcome you into his family. So we open ourselves into the emotions of love and affection for God. We replace fear, jealousy, and anger with love and commitment and joy in the presence of Jesus. You can't just rid yourself of of emotions and leave yourself emotionally void. You need new emotions, new affections. But then as we develop those emotions and affections for Jesus, we still guard them. We guard them to make sure that we we don't go off the rails again. We don't move off of the path of wisdom onto the path of folly. And then we use those emotions because here's the truth that we all know. We know it, we just don't know what to do about it. Every single day, you encounter people that are completely broken, that are living in despair, that are hurting. And every day, you think, I wish there was something I can do. I wish I could make a difference. But if Jesus can make a difference in them, then you can. Jesus. That's the simple truth that we need to be reminded of. When it feels like there's nothing we can do, nothing we can say, no answer we have, if we just allow ourselves to open up to the heart of Jesus, and the heart of Jesus for the person that's hurting in front of us, Jesus speaks the gospel, and he's going to use you to do it. So as we stand and worship, I'm going to ask, where is God calling you? Where is God sending you? to engage at a deeper level with someone that is hurting and say, I see you, I see your sorrow, I see your pain, and good news is the answer.
the only way to find you. Thank you for seeing me.